So remember, as we jump into this chapter, Jacob is on the run from Esau. Remember, Jacob is a rat. He's stolen his father's blessing right under the nose of um, his older uh, brother Esau. And as we jump into chapter 28, Jacob is about to travel 500 miles back to a place called Haran, where his grandfather Abraham once lived. And that's like walking from Nidri to northern Spain. That's a fair old crack to walk in that day. And in fact, Jacob is walking in completely the opposite way that Abraham had traveled 125 years previously. So here he is. We're in chapter 28. He's on his own. He's on the run from his family. He's on the run from God. And 500 miles is a long way, a long walk to find a better life. But as this story of Jacob is going to unfold in the future weeks, we're going to discover that all Jacob is going to find in this new place is trouble. And uh, Jacob is like many of us, right? It's what people do. Maybe life is not working out for us. Maybe life has reached a bit of a crisis point for us. And we think to ourselves, maybe the best way to change my life is to get out of here. Maybe what I need is a total change of life and direction. Maybe what I need is to start again. Maybe what I need is something new to help me escape the problems that I've got here and now. See it all the time, right? People move job alarmingly, don't they? With alarming regularity today. Back when I was growing up, people are in jobs 10, 20, 30 years. These days, people just change jobs like they change clothes. Maybe it's, they'll move house. Maybe they'll take up with a new partner. They'll start life with somebody different. That'll make my life better. And what we find is what Jacob found is after a while, those changes that we thought would make ourselves feel better actually lead us often down the same troubles we had before. We discover actually we're not happier than we were before. This is what Jacob is doing in Genesis 28. He's not just running away from his problems, he's running away from the Lord, and he's about to find out, as we all will one day, that there is nowhere to hide from the living God. If you look at verse 11, we read, don't we, that Jacob stops at a certain place to spend the night, and he uses a stone for a pillow. And then, then comes the famous dream of verse 12. He dreams, behold, there was a ladder or a staircase, set upon the earth, the top of it reached to heaven. So let's just stop there because there's lots of debate about what this ladder or staircase was. And I'm going to make it easy for all of us by just getting to the point. Okay? 
This is a dream about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is literally present in this dream. How do I know? Well, I know because of the words I had um, Sam read earlier from 1 John. Sorry, from John chapter 1. Jesus speaking in John 1, let me remind you. John 1, 47 to 51, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. He said, Behold an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says to him, How do you know me? Jesus says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said to him, Because I said this to you, because I said this little thing to you, because I saw you under a fig tree, you now believe that I'm the Son of God. Listen, Jesus says, One day you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Listen to the language, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God descending, ascending, and descending on the Son of Man. So as Jacob is here in this wilderness place, on the run, he meets with Jesus. And he sees this ladder that stretches up to heaven. It's the same Jesus he's going to meet in Genesis 32. He's going to wrestle with him in chapter 32. Now notice as well in in verse 13 that God comes down the ladder from glory to stand directly over Jacob. This is important. Why? Because remember what the human race tried to do back in Genesis 11. They tried to build a tower that would do what? Reach all the way to heaven so that they could become like God. The tower fails, God punishes them. Now we've got Jesus doing the opposite of what they attempted to do. This is Jesus coming to earth to seek and save the worst of sinners. Men like men and women and children like just like Jacob, and he does it so that one day we too can enter the heavenly gates of glory. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 16, nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's why we need Jesus. There's no tower we can build that is high enough to ever gain his entry into eternal glory. There's nothing we can do. There's no... There's no amount of good deeds we can do. There's no amount of money we can give to charity or or, or, or to the church. Nothing. We cannot, on our own efforts, ever reach eternal glory. The only way it can happen is if God reaches down to us. And that's exactly what is going on here in this text. Let's keep reading the rest. Look at verse 12, the end of verse 12. We've got this ladder. Then he says, look, behold, the angels of God are ascending and descending on it. In other words, they're going up and down this staircase constantly. These messengers of God were relating the news of what was happening to God's people. Very often in the Bible, angels delivered to humans the message of God. Remember the Gospels as they appeared uh, to announce the birth of Jesus. We cannot see these angels mostly. Sometimes they do make an appearance. Most of the time, 
We do not see these angelic beings, but the Bible teaches us that believers are surrounded on every side by angels. Angels never leave our side, the scripture says. Wherever we go, they go. Look what the Lord says to Jacob then in verse 13 and through to 15. Behold, the Lord stood above it. He said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised to you. And that is the clear testimony of Jesus speaking to Jacob and saying to him, listen, you are now one of the children of the covenant promise I made to Abraham in Genesis 12. The blessing, remember, that same blessing he stole from his father, Jesus is now saying you can keep it. You can have it. Not because your father, you took it from your father, but because I am telling you that you can. The promises to Abraham and to Isaac are now your, I made, he says, uh, to, uh, to them is now yours, he says. And he guarantees him in those verses, everything that I said will happen for you, Jacob. So Jacob wakes up. Verse 16. Jacob wakes from his sleep. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob suddenly realizes that even though he is physically alone in the wilderness, even though he is on the run from his family and his friends, he realizes that God is with him, even there. As I've said before, there is no place on earth that we can go to where God is not present. That's a comfort for Christians. That should put the fear up you if you're not. Psalm 139, uh, verse 7 to 12 says this. This is the psalmist. Where shall I go from your uh, spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Shoal, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light about me be as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Wherever we are, Jacob learns, God is. Wherever we are. Whether in church, pretending you're a Christian, or sniffing a line at a nightclub, pretending you're not. God is there. Terrifying. Because no sin is hidden from God's sight, is it? We can hide our sin from one another. We can hide our sin from those nearest and dearest. We can even kid ourselves that what we're up to is not so, so bad. There is nothing, nothing, we do in the darkness that God will not one day bring into the light. But if we're a Christian, 
If we're confessing our sins, if we're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, then what a comfort this is as a child of God, right? God never leaves us. God never forsakes us. Even if we're alone, even if we're feeling forsaken. I mean, that has got to be a comfort to many of us when we find ourselves in some dark places, right? You know, when I first got saved, when I first became a Christian, I couldn't believe this truth. Oh dear, neither could they. When I first got saved, it's very difficult to describe to someone when you become a Christian. You ever found that difficult? They're going, what happens, Jen? You're trying to explain it, and you're like, you sound like a dingbat. And I always say to people, here's what happened for me. It's almost like I'd been walking the rounds in my life with my eyes closed. Like I hadn't seen and realized this truth before. Like I'd seen trees and flowers and the sea and beautiful sunsets and all that, blah, blah, blah. But I never quite understood until God opened my eyes that God did that. And God's everywhere present all the time. Because I couldn't see God, I didn't believe in him. But once my eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit, that's when I began to see clearly for the first time. I'd walked past gospel-preaching churches probably every day of my life oblivious to the reality of Jesus. This is a stupid old building full of sad idiots to me. It's better to do with their lives than worship some imaginary spirit being. Right? And then, bang, the scales come off. And like Jacob, you wake up and you're like, hang on a minute. There's something more going on than just my eyes can see in this world. When I got saved by Jesus, I began to see him everywhere. He was there when I was in care as a child. He was there when I was at school. He was there when I was in jail. He was there when I was in crack houses. He was there when I was homeless. He was there when my heart was filled with joy. He was there when I was broken hearted. We live and breathe in this world, most of us, while the spiritual realm lives and works among us largely unseen. And so what a freeing, beautiful, life-affirming, encouraging, hope-filled moment it is for us when we come to see and believe in the gospel of Jesus for the first time. Of course Jacob is amazed in verse 16. You would be, wouldn't you? We should be amazed. When we're saved by the Lord, we're not discovering new truth, by the way. We are seeing the reality of already existing eternal truths. God has always existed, whether we see him or not whether we believe in him or not. And so what we've got in Genesis 28 is Jacob's first, I think, really tangible experience of the Lord. And it's going to change his world from this point on. From Genesis 28, verse 16 on, Jacob will never be the same man again. He'll still be a rat. 
You're about to find out all the trouble he's about to get into. But it'll be changed. He won't be able to walk around like that, pretending that God doesn't exist. His eyes are opened. He has to face it. He has to face it now. That's what true conversion does. It saves our soul, but it transforms our minds. He will say, don't we often get this? People say, Christians, oh, you lot are getting brainwashed and that. Sick of hearing that, brainwashed. We're all getting brainwashed, by the way. It's what we're getting brainwashed by is the question. Eh? It's what we trust in, the BBC. I'll go with the Bible against the BBC. All right. God doesn't just save our souls. He transforms our minds. He opens up our spiritual sights. We can never be the same person again. Of course, you're going to fall back into old habits now and then. Satan's going to trap you and trick you and pull you in. Well, come a point, no matter how low you get, where you're going to have to stand up once more and repent and confess Jesus is Lord because you know, however much you want to deny him, you can't. You can't. In him, the Bible says, God, we live and move and have our being, and he is not far from every one of us. That's the truth we've got to remember every day for the rest of our lives. Because if Jesus has not changed everything about us, then Jesus has not changed anything about us. And the Bible says the truth is not in us. So here's the the news this morning as we leave this place. Every single human being, believer or otherwise, lives in the presence of God and the spiritual realm. And they either live humbly and fearfully under the lordship of Jesus, or they live blindly and rebelliously as sons and daughters of Satan. That's the truth of the scriptures. Because look again at verse 16. Jacob is amazed, but he's also something else, isn't he? Sorry, in verse 17. In verse 17, he's terrified. Terrified. He realizes, what? God is here. God sees. God sees me. God sees what I've done. And then he thinks, that means he knows what I'm like. I mean, that means he knows what I'm really, not that public persona. That means he knows what I'm really like. That struck terror into him. If you've never been scared by God, we've probably never understood the gospel. Because once we understand the gospel, we quickly realize that God is holy and we are not. We're not. Don't, confess, don't compare yourself to your neighbor or your best mate or your other friend in church to make yourself feel better about yourself. That's not how we're judged. We're judged against one person, and that is the holiness of God Almighty. And we all come up short. Remember Peter in the boat with Jesus? He realizes he's in the presence of God. What does he do? Falls down, scared out his nut, terrified. Isaiah chapter 6 has a vision of God he can't bear. He can't bear to look upon God because of his own sinful condition. So he's amazed. He's terrified. But then 
we see in verse 19 that he calls the name of this place Bethel, which means house of gods. So his fear doesn't lead to like spiritual paralysis. It leads him to honest worship. Of course we're not good enough to worship God on our own. Of course we're sinners. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't worship God. We come to him, we recognize we're sinners. We thank you for Jesus who saves us from our sin. And because of that, we now will worship you, Lord. Not because we're good, because he is good. In verse 20, he makes a promise, a vow. He says, you'll be my God, I'll give my tithe to you. Very generous. And uh, we'll get to that. Jacob lays down, initially in this text, as a godless sinner, but he wakes up as a saved Christian, saint. Saved, but hear me, not perfect. He's still just a man. And when you read 19 to 22, he sounds dead spiritual, doesn't he, Jacob? Oh, it's the house of God, and I'll build this to you, and I'll do this. Oh, and you can have a tithe. There's a cheeky 10% for you, God. Oh, thanks very much. Hmm. There's a problem with his prayer, though, if you look at verse 20. The whole of his prayers from 19 through 23 are started by one word, and that one word is if. Look at the text. If God will be with me. If God will protect me on my journey. If he'll clothe and feed me. If he'll protect me from my brother Esau. Then... He says in verse 22, then I'll follow you. So God just literally finished saying to him, Jesus is saying to him, the earth, the ground you're sleeping on will be yours. Your offspring will be too numerous to count. Speak, this is Jesus speaking to him. He, he names the place house of God's. He should have just praised God for his faithfulness and moved on. But here we go. He makes this deeply insulting vow. This guy just can't help manipulating people, and he's going to get into more trouble manipulating people later on. I've got an advantage over most of you. I've already written my sermons up to chapter 25. (laughs) Jacob's going to sink even deeper. But right now, he's saying, if, 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 if. If you do this, Lord, I'll follow you. No one ever said that? If you do this for me, Lord, then I'll do that for you. Like negotiating with the Lord, like we've got something to bring to the table. Or I'll give you a tithe and that in your church. I'll stick 20 quid in the offering. Oh, will you? Oh, you just changed the Almighty's mind right there. Of course, I'll give you a new car. If, if you give me this job, if I get this exam result, If you give me this partner, if my kids will speak to me again, if, add whatever prayer you've got in there. If you do this, then I'll follow you. How many of us have prayed prayers like that? How many of us insult God with that kind of praying? You do something for me, I'll do something for you. You give me enough money to live on, and I'll give you 10%. I mean, come on. Even sports agents get more than that. It'd be like ringing your boss up at work and saying, 
Bring your boss up. You've been skiving for a couple of weeks. Can't be bothered to go in. It's, the sun, the sun's, it's nice, sunny. You've been in the garden sunbathing. You bring the boss up. You say, listen, here's how it is. If you give me the wages for the job I didn't do, I'll give you 10% of it back. It's a stupid deal. Why would the boss who owns 100% of your wages pay 90% out, keep 10% for himself? You don't deserve wages. We've been lazy, we've been unproductive. And you're thinking, yeah, but if you, if you pay me, I'll tell everybody what a great boss you are. But let's conveniently forget that I deserve to be fired and deserve no pay. Jacob deserves nothing from God except his wrath. He's on the run. The, promise, the promises Jesus gives him here are promises of grace, despite the fact that he was a wrong one. It's not reward for being a good boy. There's no room in our prayers for, if you give me this and I'll give you that. The only thing we ought to be praying, not the only thing, but one of the most important things we should be praying is giving God grateful thanks that he saved us, knowing exactly what we're like. So the correct approach to God in prayer is this. You are just, you are holy, you are gracious, you are loving, you are merciful, I am an undeserving sinner, and I want to bow to your will, I want to live for your glory with what is left with the rest of my life. You want to give me something, Lord? Give me the power by your Holy Spirit to live in a way that pleases and honors you. I don't want to give you 10% of what you already own 100% of. Take all I am and have and use me for your glory. It's a better prayer, is it not? Now, we could look on at Jacob and judge him really harshly at this point. But the point of this story is not to judge Jacob, it's to praise God. How patient God is with this man. How he holds back his hand of judgment. We should leave the text with a renewed appreciation for grace. Grace in, this, grace in Jacob's life, but grace in our own, right? Because Jacob is a picture of all of us. And I want us to notice as, as we end that how did this communication happen between God and Jacob? Because it wasn't Jacob reaching out to God. It was God coming down to meet Jacob. Jacob's not searching for God. He's running in the opposite direction. God reaches out to him. And that's how God operates in the world. Sometimes he comes to us at our lowest points. He intervenes in our lives. And if he hadn't intervened, our lives would probably still be going on the same sad way they were going on beforehand. Unless Jesus, without Jesus stepping into the history of our race, we would never have known God. Never. You know, often 
unbelievers can say, there is no way you can know for sure if God exists. And even if that were possible, they say, you've still no idea about what really happens after, after death. So the best we can do, they say, is to live for the here and now and put the thought of God out of your mind. And even if there is a God, we can never really know what he or she is like, so why bother trying to find out? Well, Genesis 28 teaches us that God is knowable because he's made himself known. He made himself known to Jacob. He has made himself known to us by coming to earth as Jesus, the God-man, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He has made it clear what he expects from us in his words. I've said this before, I'll say it again. The Bible does not tell us everything about God, but it tells us everything about ourselves and what we need to do to inherit eternal life. And that makes the Bible the most important book in the history of the world. So go this morning. You can go in fear. If you're still unconvinced, you can go in praise. But go with the same truth. God knows us, whether we believe in him or not. And God wants us to know him. But the only way we can know him is through Jesus Christ. You don't have to enter death scared of what is next. You don't have to live an empty and futile life pretending that everything is okay. You can live a life of purpose and hope. More important than that, we can enter into eternal life with Jesus if we would only open up our ears and listen. God help us. Amen.